beast stirs. Last quarter of the 7th century B.C. and the beast stirs. The leonine form rouses itself. Rippling muscles twitching, claws arch and strike, fierce eyes fixed, massive jaws Agape, fingers laid back. The lion-like figure bestirs itself at the climax of the 7th century B.C. The lion-like beast stirs. It has been said that the 20 years encompassing the capture and deportation of Daniel and his three friends <coughs> to the destruction of Jerusalem and the final captivity of Judah, that these 20 years are the most prolifically documented period of Old Testament history on record. Archaeological excavations and artifacts historical records, analytic chronicles, even religious texts, all combined to provide more information for understanding this period than any other in the history of the former testament. Therefore, to understand the book of Daniel, the reader of the Bible must understand the history of the times. A history marching, pulsating, crashing with drama. The narrative drama of a prophetic biography and the history it projects. Please do not suppose that these manifold details these carefully articulated facts are assembled to impress you. They are not. They are recounted to teach you, to edify your mind, your understanding, your heart, from the wealth of the resources that are available to us through the providence of God in these last days. 
You and I have the privilege in this early 21st century Anno Domini to be exposed to greater riches of historical detail and narrative drama than at any other time in the history of the interpretation of this magnificent prophetic book. The book of Daniel opens to you a window on history, the history of Judah, 605 to 586 B.C., the history of Assyria, 612 to 609 B.C., the history of Babylon, 626 to 539 B.C., the history of Persia, 539 to 331 B.C., the history of Alexander the Great's Greek Empire, 331 to 323 B.C., the history of the Ptolemies, 301 to 31 B.C., and the death of Antony and Cleopatra, the history of the Seleucids, 301 to 63 B.C., and the conquest of Palestine by Pompey, the history of the Maccabees, 167 to 63 B.C., the history of the kingdom of heaven. As we examine the history contained in and projected by the book of Daniel, we will be wonderfully confirmed in the testimony to and assurance of the supernatural revelation and inspiration of the prophet himself and his words. Daniel's words will bring us to the history of the Son of God, to Christ Jesus, the center point of all history, projected by Daniel, accomplished in these last days. We begin with primary documents. The inspired primary documents of the Bible, the last chapters of Second Kings and Second Chronicles, Select chapters from the book of Jeremiah and Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 are focused this evening. I alert you to the fact that I am using the New American Standard Version. Mine is copyrighted 1975, but any version of the New American Standard between 1960 and 1995 when they revised it and made it less acceptable to me is what I will be using, and you may follow me <clears throat> in terms of the outline. Now, I'm not asking you to buy a new Bible. However, many of you know that I continue to believe that the New American Standard is the finest translation of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts that's ever been made. Nonetheless, my outline will be keyed <clears throat> to the expressions and quotations from the NASB. I'm just informing you of that. Second series of primary documents, <clears throat> Donald J. Wiseman's Chronicle of Chaldean Kings, 625-556 B.C. Randy, who are the Chaldeans? Jason, who are the Chaldeans? Terry? Yes, he came from Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, but who are they? They are not Persians. Margaret, who are they? Babylonians. 
They are Babylonians. All right, so Chaldean is a synonym for Babylonian. So this is the Chronicles of the Babylonian Kings by Donald J. Wiseman, who died in February of 2010, an evangelical scholar, a convert from Plymouth Brethrenism, and a world-class Assyriologist. He provided the first English translation of the Tablet Chronicles of the Babylonian kings discovered in the 19th century in the excavations of Babylon and Nineveh. And here on the table you have a color photograph of one of those tablets which he translated and a highlight of the translation which describes the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. You can see the cuneiform at the break if you're interested in taking a look at it. I also have a copy of Weissman's uh, famous 1975 Schweik Lectures in London, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, excellent book uh, on the character of uh, this king and the nature of the city that he erected. All right, that was the first translation of those chronicles, which are records of the uh, Babylonian kings from 626 down to 556, and record a number of points of contact with the biblical uh, uh, cities, the biblical kingdoms, and biblical personalities. So they are extremely important primary documents from outside the Bible, uh, confirming the Bible uh, as uh, we have the record in the scriptures. Now, in addition to uh, Donald Weissman, A.K. Grayson, Uh, whose work, The Assyrian and Babylonian Chronicles, published 11 years ago, is a new translation with a commentary of not only what Weissman had translated, but and and he gives a new, fresh translation, but also adds to it some Assyrian uh, documents. Grayson is a secularist. He is a brilliant Assyriologist, and with J.A. Brinkman, one of the world's leading experts on Babylonian and Assyrian History. The commentary that he provides for the Chronicles of the Babylonian Kings is very important. And finally, there's an older work, J.B. Pritchard's Ancient Near Eastern Texts, usually abbreviated in the literature ANET, which has excerpts from Egyptian literature, Hittite literature, Syrian, Babylonian, Persian literature. And I have a copy of that here displayed uh, on the table. And in particular, I have highlighted the appearance of the name Jehoiakim in the Babylonian text with a provision for his supply of oil, which is part of his maintenance, food supply, etc. It's interesting that a little tablet discovered in the 19th century actually contains the name of King Jehoiakim and the provision for him in his captivity. All right, that brings us to the superscription, which I have labeled Daniel 1, 1, and 2. And as with the other prophets, with some exceptions, the superscription that introduces the book provides some data for dating the book of the Bible. And in this case, Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2 give us background information for dating this book uh, to the 7th century B.C. 
I want you to notice the structure of these two verses. As you scan verses 1 and 2, you will notice the order of the appearance of the kings. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, then Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and then finally Jehoiakim, king of Judah, listed again. We have a sandwich device there in which Nebuchadnezzar is squeezed between Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, I want to say a little bit more about this later on, but nonetheless, I want you to notice why Nebuchadnezzar is placed at the center. It is a prospective indication of Nebuchadnezzar's character in the book of Daniel. For at least four chapters of this book will deal with Nebuchadnezzar. None of the rest of the chapters of Daniel will deal with Jehoiakim. Consequently, the placing of Nebuchadnezzar's name in this kind of little sandwich device is an indication of prospective characterization. Now, there's also a frame in the book, in the first chapter of Daniel. If you will observe Daniel 1.1 and then Daniel 1.21, we once again have a prospective aspect to the entire book, only given here in the first chapter. Let's begin with verse 21. Benji, what's the date of that verse? Five thirty-nine BC. Why? That's the year that the exiles first returned under Cyrus. Not quite. When he makes a decree. Yes. Okay, but it is the date of. All you. Cyrus's conquest of Babylon. Okay, so verse twenty-one. We can date to five thirty-nine which is Cyrus the Great, and he is king of what country? Terry? Persia. Persia. And he conquers the Babylonian Empire, which precedes him in that year. And so we can date the end of chapter 1, which is also probably the end of Daniel's career, or very close to the end of Daniel's career, 539 B.C. Well, then what about verse 1? What's the date of Daniel 1 1? 605 BC. All right, so we have a frame of Daniel's career from the time he was carried off captive to Babylon in 605 by Nebuchadnezzar to the time of the end of the Babylonian Empire and the succession of the next world power, namely Persia and King Cyrus the Great. And this is the frame of the career of the prophet. So the first chapter gives us a prospective framework for the entire career of Daniel, even as it extends beyond chapter 1 in details, which we gather from various parts of the history of his own personal biography. So we have a bracket of 605-539, which is the bracket of in essence, the duration of the Babylonian Empire. Now, Babylon succeeded Assyria. And the collapse of the Assyrian Empire, after approximately 300 years of dominance of the Mesopotamian Crescent, began with her last great king, Ashurbanipal II. 
Ashurbanipal invaded Egypt in 663, conquered the city of Thebes in Upper Egypt, called in the Bible No Ammon, recorded in Nahum chapter 3, verse 8, an event which the prophet Nahum indicates will be replayed. Only the prophet Nahum is not prophesying against Egypt. What is the subject of the book of Nahum? Loretta, in one word. Robert, what's the subject of the book of Nahum? If you had to tell me the context of the book of Nahum, say it in one word. Destruction of... uh, I can see you're a Dutchman. You can't say anything in one word. (laughs) Destruction of what? Judgment. Judgment of... Assyria. Assyria. Not quite. Remember, Kristen? Nineveh. Remember, N-N-N boys. Nahum and Nineveh. N-N-N. Nahum and Nineveh. Okay, so Nahum is prophesying the destruction of Nineveh, and that is a retaliation in part for Assyria, and Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, retaliation in part for Assyria's destruction of Egypt by Ashurbanipal in 663. So what happened to No Ammon at the hands of the Assyrians is going to happen to the Assyrians at the hands of the Babylonians by uh, Nabopolassar and his allies. Now, in addition to Ashurbanipal's uh, invasion and destruction of Thebes, or No Ammon, Assyria towards the end, uh, or about the middle of the 7th century B.C., Assyria underwent a civil war. Not in the, the queen cities of Assyria, Nineveh, Kala, and Asher, but in Babylon proper. From 652 to 648, there was a rebellion against Assyria in Babylon. <clears throat> now, that Rebellion was crushed by Ashurbanipal, and he burned the city, burned Babylon to the ground. And the very next year, he marched his army to the east, to Elam. And Elam is just east of the Tigris-Euphrates Delta, near the mouth of the Persian Gulf, just to the east in modern-day Iran. He marched to Elam and destroyed the queen city of Susa, which was the capital of that empire. Well, what's happening to Assyria? She is being challenged. She's being challenged from the south by Babylon. She is being challenged from the east by the Elamites. And what must Assyria do? She must march to defend her hegemony, her dominance. And so she marches against Babylon and destroys the city. She marches against Elam and destroys the city of Susa. She is expending her energy in wars and wars and depletion of resources, etc., etc., until she herself finally collapses of exhaustion in 612 B.C., Now, Ashurbanipal is succeeded by two of his sons, rather ineffective leaders, Ashur Atal Ilani and Shinsharish Kun, both of whom 
uh, <clears throat> do nothing to stem the tide of the increasing tribalization or nationalization that is rising from both within and without Assyria to oppress her, to squeeze her, to attempt to uh, conquer her or at least break her hold on these peripheral nations that are both within and outside of her boundaries. Which leaves Asher Ublit, the second, the last of the Assyrian kings, a king who succeeds, or shall we say, takes the nobility of what's left of Assyria following the destruction of Nineveh and flees to the west, to Haran, in northern Syria, and attempts to reprise or sustain or support a kind of Assyrian uh, kingdom or empire in exile. We'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. Now, of course, Babylonians knocked off Assyria. And how did they do it? <clears throat> they did it through their king, Nabopolassar, who comes to the throne of Babylon in a rejuvenated, reconstituted Babylon following its destruction by Ashurbanipal in 648. And he galvanizes a nation which is angry about its subjugation at the hands of the Assyrians. He will conquer Assyria, and Babylon will rule the world for nearly a century. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nabopolassar is followed by his son. In fact, his son is the crown prince who often campaigns with him, sometimes called Nebuchadrezzar, particularly by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. For those of you that have a King James or an old ASV, You'll sometimes see uh, that name uh, assigned to him. He is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the conqueror of Judah, the destroyer of Jerusalem. He will lay siege to the capital of Judah no less than three times, and he will capture Daniel, Ezekiel, and many others in the process of laying siege to the great city of David. Now, he will be succeeded by his son, Amal Marduk, who is called Evil Merodach in the Bible, <clears throat> the last verses of Second Kings and Second Chronicles talk about how Evil Merodach or Amal Marduk, son of Nebuchadnezzar, releases King Jehoiakim, former king of Judah, from prison or perhaps from a kind of house arrest in 562 after Jehoiakim had been either restrained or placed under house arrest or imprisoned for 35 years. <clears throat> now, we have, as I mentioned earlier, a 19th century tablet, a tablet excavated in the 19th century A.D., which has the name of Jehoiakim on it, and you can see a translation of that up here at the front, a, a tablet which indicates that Nebuchadnezzar was providing for him in this either imprisonment or kind of restricted house arrest. Uh, in other words, Nebuchadnezzar recognizing his royal pedigree and treating him as a royal prisoner, not, uh, not abusing him. It's an interesting tablet that contains the name as well as the provision. Now, following uh, Amal Marduk, there are a number of uh, lesser-known and, le and more insignificant Babylonian kings, Nereglisser, Labashi Marduk. We come now to Nabonidus, 
who was the last king of Babylon, one of the peculiar stories of ancient history. He abandons his capital in Babylon and goes to the Arabian desert, to Tama, thousands or hundreds of miles away from Babylon, and places in Babylon his son as co-regent Belshazzar, the famous figure of the fifth chapter of Daniel. We'll have, say, some, we'll have more to say about Nabonidus and Belshazzar uh, in subsequent weeks, but this gives you uh, the list of the uh, kings of Babylon, the uh, last one before the uh, overthrow of Babylonia by Cyrus the Great and the Persians in 539 B.C. Here we're back to that date, which we see in Daniel 1, 21, 539. Now, this broad paradigm uh, focuses upon the clash of the empires. <clears throat> this is the region of Mesopotamia or the Mesopotamian Crescent, which was the uh, location, the geographical location of the Assyrian and Babylonian powers. This is the Mediterranean Sea, and this is Egypt, which is the other international power from the third millennium B.C. on down. Now, as these two powers vie back and forth and Babylon becomes ascendant over Assyria, Egypt becomes nervous. And so what we're going to have is we're going to have an increasing clash between these two international powers, between Egypt and Babylon, and caught at the center of the crossroads will be Israel, Judah. Now, beginning with Egypt and the transition which occurred to bring Egypt to a kind of prominence which it had not had for uh, a couple of hundred years. We begin with the rise of the Sate dynasty or the 26th dynasty in Egypt from 664 to 525. Now, the Sate dynasty is a native Egyptian dynasty in contrast to the declining Nubian dynasty. Now, where is Nubia? Anyone? Somalia? Somalia? Somalia, no. Somalia is on the Horn of Africa. That's too far to the east. Ethiopia? You're getting closer. Possibly Ethiopia. Sudan. Sudan. All right, so south of Egypt is the Sudan and then Ethiopia or ancient Abyssinia. The Nubians, obviously a black race, The Nubians conquered Egypt. They conquered Egypt from the south. They flew into the Nile River Valley, and they marched up the Nile all the way to the Delta and eventually dominated Egypt for uh, almost a 100 years. The Nubian dynasty, the so-called 25th dynasty, places Egypt under foreign pharaohs. Now, the Sait dynasty came to power by overthrowing or driving out the Nubians, driving that black race of Pharaoh and their 
allies uh, down south out of Egypt back into the Sudan and into Ethiopia in 656. And the leader of this uh, revolt against the Nubians was Semeticus I, or Samtik I, who is credited with being the first of the pharaohs of the 26th Sate dynasty, as well as the great pharaoh who reunites Egypt after the Nubian dynasty had controlled the country. Now, Samtik I's most famous contribution to ancient history is his son, Pharaoh Nico II. Nico is the king or the pharaoh of Egypt who tries to reinforce the remnant of Assyria. I mentioned that Asher Ubalit takes a remnant of the nobility of Assyria at the collapse of the Assyrian Empire, destruction of, uh, of uh, Nineveh, and goes west to Haran. And Nico, a pharaoh of Egypt, attempts to reinforce that Assyrian Empire in exile, and in the process runs up against King Josiah of Judah at the pass in Megiddo, or at Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. And at that pass, Josiah is killed by the army of uh, Nico II. Now, Nico is succeeded by Semeticus II, or Samtik II, and he is succeeded by Pharaoh Hophra. Now, Pharaoh Hophra is mentioned twice in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 44.30, he is named, where his murder is prophesied at the hands of his countrymen. He was assassinated in 570 B.C. Specifically why, we're not absolutely sure, but the prophecy of his death by Jeremiah is a part of the, shall we say, the collapse of Egyptian power. Now, there is an allusion to Hophra in Jeremiah 37.5. And in that allusion, he sallies forth out of Egypt during Nebuchadnezzar's third siege of Jerusalem in 587-86 B.C. We'll take a look at that in a little more detail later on. Nebuchadnezzar, when Hophra comes up out of Egypt with his army... Nebuchadnezzar lifts the siege of Jerusalem, turns his army to face Hophra, and Hophra retreats. It is the last attempt of Egypt to clash with Babylon. So these individuals who are mentioned specifically in the Bible have an important part in the history of the times of Daniel the prophet. And that brings us to the vice which sandwiches Judah. Judah caught in the pincer movement between the marching armies of Egypt and Babylon. Now, if you'll take your maps and look at map number two, you will see an outline of Josiah's attempt to stop Pharaoh Necho at the pass of Megiddo in 609 B.C. Why does Josiah go out to Megiddo and attempt to create a barrier against 
Egypt's <clears throat> reinforcement of the remnant of Assyria up there at the top of your map, Haran and Carchemish. This is an interesting question. Uh, It's interesting for two reasons. Number one, Josiah chooses Megiddo as the the place where he attempts to stop the advance of the Egyptian army. Why does he choose Megiddo? Because it's a very narrow pass through mountainous range. Now, it's not mountains as you think of the Olympics or the Cascades. These are hills, about 25, 2,600 feet. But this is a a narrow pass through those hills. It's very much like the pass at Thermopylae in Greek history. You know, it's a very narrow defile, and so your army is not going to be able to go through in full force. And Megiddo is, and Josiah chooses Megiddo as a place advantageous to his attempt to stop Nico from going up to Haran. Well, it fails. And it fails, as Nico says, particularly as the Book of Chronicles tells the story, as Nico says, because your God has told me to go up. In other words, this was decreed by God. Now, it doesn't make Nico a believer. It just simply is Nico is using the religion of the Jews in order to promote his own political agenda. But nonetheless, why is it that Josiah tries to stop it, and why is it that God overrules and even takes Josiah's life by his degree in the, decree in the process? Well, <clears throat> Josiah did not want to see a rebirth of Assyria. Assyria had harassed Both the northern kingdom of Israel had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel a century before Josiah became king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Assyria had decimated the northern kingdom, leveled the capital at Samaria. And now here is this hated Assyrian empire been brought to its knees and destroyed by the Babylonians. And what's happening? Here's Egypt marching out to go up to try to revive the Assyrians. Not on my watch, says Josiah. And so he attempts to stop this reinforcement and revival, even to the point of the risk of his own life. Well, not having succeeded, Josiah is killed and Nico goes up to Carchemish, where he is royally Blasted by Nabopolassar and his crown prince son Nebuchadnezzar. And on his way back, as you can see from that map, on his way back to Egypt, retreating from his defeat in 609 at Carchemish, he stops at Ribla there in Syria and he installs Jehoahaz as king over Judah. Now, Jehoahaz, of course, is the son of Josiah. And Nico endorses his uh, being enthroned as king over the southern kingdom and therefore reduces Jehoahaz to his puppet. Now, Jehoahaz reigns for only three months and is replaced by Jehoiakim. Now, we will have a Jehoiakim and a Jehoiakin. It's easy to remember which one comes first. 
M comes before N in the alphabet, so Jehoiakim comes before Jehoiakin. Jehoiakin is placed on the throne as a vassal to uh, Nico uh, on his way back to Egypt and re- remains as king over the southern kingdom until he decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in 605 B.C., 2 Kings 24, verse 1. Now, undoubtedly, Jehoiakim believed that he could throw off the the power of Nebuchadnezzar four years after he had taken the throne because Egypt and Pharaoh Necho was encouraging him or urging him on. That, of course, did not make Nebuchadnezzar happy when he heard about the rebellion of Jehoiakim, that he wasn't going to send his annual tribute anymore, and that he was conspiring with the Egyptians to rise up against himself, against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar marches his army in 597 B.C. to Jerusalem, actually in in 605 B.C., I should say, to Jerusalem, and then again in 597 B.C. to finally deal with Jehoiakim. That second siege finds Jehoiakim dead when Nebuchadnezzar arrives arrives at the gates of Jerusalem or nearly dead in 597. And Nebuchadnezzar replaces Jehoiakim with Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim endures as long as that siege endures or as long as it takes for Nebuchadnezzar to subdue the city. When he is taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar along with the prophet Ezekiel in 597 and carried off to Babylon, imprisoned or placed under house arrest, the document that I pointed out a couple of times already, which indicates that he is supplied by Nebuchadnezzar from his royal provision. And Nebuchadnezzar places on the throne of Judah in 597 the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, who will betray Nebuchadnezzar in 587, and Nebuchadnezzar will march against Judah for the third time, besiege Jerusalem for the third time, and this time he will destroy the city. Third time is a charm. You have resisted me twice before. You will not resist me one more time to survive. And so he levels the city, burns it, and carries off the rest of the noble population or the professional population and leaves uh, the rest of the city in ashes. Burn layers in Jerusalem that have been traced back to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 are as black as coal. So charred is the fire that destroyed that city that it leaves black Ash And embedded in that black ash are arrowheads, hundreds of arrowheads. So furious was the destruction of the city by the Babylonian army. All right, now that is a uh, rough overview. Uh, let's now turn to Nabopolassar's revolt against Assyria. Let's go back to 626. 
and look at the rise of Babylon and the demise of Assyria. Now, usually, in the ancient world, a succeeding king was related to the previous ruler by some kind of royal blood. That is not true of Nabopolassar. He calls himself in what is called the Nabopolassar Chronicle, or Cylinder, and you can see it at that website, which is on your outline. You can see a translation of it. He calls himself in that, uh, on that cylinder the son of a nobody. What he means by that is that he had no royal lineage. He was simply a man who galvanized the Babylonians in 626, galvanized them with uh, enmity and hatred against their Assyrian overlords, and succeeded in uh, rising up and eventually destroying or conquering the Assyrian Empire. Now, he does not do it alone. He has allies. And there are two significant alliances that he makes. Nabopolassar, first of all, allies himself with the Elamites. In 624 and 623, he enters into a treaty with the Elamites who were all too happy to join someone else who wanted to throw off the Assyrian yoke. Remember that Ashurbanipal had destroyed Susa, the capital of Elam, in 647-646. And so when Nabopolassar approaches the Elamites, they are all too happy to supply troops and materiel for the campaign against Assyria. Second alliance is Nabopolassar's alliance with Syaxares, who was king of the Medes. Now, the Medes... We had a map of uh, the uh, Babylonian Empire, which is here, uh, the Persian Gulf, which is here. The Elamites are here on the east plains, but the Medes are in the Zagros Mountains, in what's uh, the range of modern Kurdistan, and they are mountain tribes. So what Nabopolassar has succeeded in doing is rimming Assyria from the east with his own allies. He's got the mountain tribes of the Medes on his side. He's got the tribes of the plains of the Elamites on his side. He's closed off the frontier of Assyria against herself. And Babylon now controls the south and the east and more or less the north. But Assyria, which is right in here in the central part of uh, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, Assyria is now virtually surrounded uh, by the time uh, Nabopolassar begins to squeeze the vice and to uh, stretch the noose against Babylon. Now, if you'll take your first map and take a look at some of the geography or the history of this uh, collapse of Assyria. Question? Yeah, um, why didn't Assyria completely decimate the Babylonian revolts? Like, they completely destroy Israel. Why didn't they do the same to these Babylonian uprisings? Well, when you destroy a city, 
you don't want it to be completely unproductive. You don't want the region to be completely unproductive. And so as the Assyrians did with Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel, they made it a kind of satrap. They made it a kind of little province of their empire. So having destroyed Babylon in that civil war in 648, nonetheless, they still have inhabitants there that they want to control. And some of those inhabitants are relocated. Because you want the land to be productive. You don't want it to be completely, you know, scorched earth and and nothing there. So over the period of years, the people that are outside the city begin to, you know, once again get into the spirit of uh, opposition to this dominant world power. And it's a matter of time between a, in which a charismatic figure like Nabopolassar arises to galvanize them and, and to draw them all together. So we don't, we shouldn't think that uh, even when Jerusalem is destroyed, that every last living soul is destroyed and, and carried it is not. There are, the very poor of the land are left. The so-called in Hebrew, the Hama'adets, meaning the people of the land. They are left there. But it's, it's the professional people. It's the classes of wealthy and uh, nobility that are carried off for the most part. Did that help? Yeah, I guess I wonder why. Um, you've always got agitators. In every culture, you've got agitators. And so, consequently, even if he destroys the city of Babylon, within a generation, he's got people that don't like him anymore. The Syrians have got people that don't like him anymore. And so, consequently, that's what Nabopolassar capitalizes. He capitalizes on this spirit of rebellion that is generated and, and the long memory of what had happened, some of them remembering what had happened to Babylon. And now they're going to pay tit for tat. All right, now... <clears throat> In that alliance concluded with the Medes in 616, Nabopolassar and Syaxeres, there is a clash between Nabopolassar and the united forces of Assyria and Egypt. Notice on your map, just above the B on Babylon, 616 B.C., and a clash between Assyria and Egypt. Now, that long dotted arrow, if you'll follow it back to the left on your map and then down to the left, you will see that it originates in Egypt. This is a campaign of Semeticus I, or Samtik I, that leader of the 26th dynasty, to join Egypt in 616, to take Egypt and join Assyria in 616, Allying himself with Shin Sharishkun of Assyria against Nabopolassar, but to no avail. That clash in 616, which is an attempt to join Assyria and Egypt, fails, and Samtik is driven back across that northern part of the Arabian desert into Egypt, which leaves Nabopolassar very much dominant with respect to the military and political situation in Babylon and advancing, as the dark arrows show, up towards Nineveh and Asher. Now, the next city of the Assyrian Empire was the ancient capital, the capital of Asher, so named for the chief god of the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire was named the nation of Asher. And Asher is a god of war. He is like Mars in Roman mythology. So Asher is the Assyrian 
uh, god of warfare, and that characterizes the Assyrian Empire for 300 years. Wars, wars, endless wars, trampling upon nations and kingdoms and cities with the most cruel tortures. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, this city falls, but it falls to the Medes, Nabopolassar's newest ally. Nabopolassar does arrive when the city of Asher is burning, but he's too late to so-called take part in looting it. And so he enters into a family alliance with Syaxeres. He marries his son, Nebuchadnezzar, to Syaxeres' daughter, Amitris. Now, Amitris was born in the region, in the mountains of the Zagros, in the mountains of the Median nation. And marrying Nebuchadnezzar was not necessarily a step down in terms of royal alliance, but she had to live on the hot desert plains of Babylon. And anybody that's been in Iraq, in Iraqi freedom or desert storm, knows that the hot plains of Babylon or Iraq are not friendly to somebody that was raised in the Olympics of the Cascades or anywhere else where there were mountains. Extremely brutal heat, sometimes over 120 degrees. And so, Amitris longed for the verdant mountains and the trees and the gardens of her homeland. And so, her dutiful husband, Nebuchadnezzar, built the hanging gardens of Babylon for her. And so, the story of how the hanging gardens originated. Because she longed for her homeland. All right. Now, romance being over, on with the rest of the story. The next city to fall, as you notice from your map, is Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It is destroyed by the Babylonians and the Medes. Together in 612, the book of Nahum prophesies it, along with the book of Zephaniah. Shinsharish Kun probably died in the flames. There's a famous 19th century painting called The uh, Immolation of Sardanapalus. It's probably an attempt to uh, portray what happens uh, to uh, Shinsharish Kun. But be that as it may, Asher Ubalit leaves the city, and you can see that dark arrow heading to the left to Haran. That's the uh, escape of Asher Ubalit and a remnant of the Assyrian nobility attempting to establish a exilic Assyrian empire in northern Syria in 610-609. All right, now, Egypt's response to the fall of Assyria has already been noted when uh, Samtik uh, attempts to reinforce Assyria in 616 but is driven back to Egypt. But he marches out one more time. In 610, if you follow that dotted line there from uh, Assyria up into uh, Palestine and Syria, Samtik once again marches out towards the north. Was he trying to reinforce Asher Ubalit? Was he trying to bolster the remnant of Assyria and Haran in 610? We don't really know for sure. But nonetheless, as he arrived in Palestine, he died. And so his army turned back to Egypt, not only to bury him with uh, royal honors, etc., 
but also to uh, secure the succession of uh, the next ruler, namely his son, Pharaoh Necho II. And the next year, 609, Necho II marches towards Haran once again. Now that is your second map. I referred to it a little bit earlier, but let's take a look at it now. Map number two. This is the map of the 609 campaign of Nico coming up out of Egypt, the bottom left of your map, going to the Pass of Megiddo where he meets Josiah, and Josiah is, is killed, 609 B.C., proceeds all the way up to Carchemish at the top of your map, which is the uh, city on the Euphrates River where Nabopolassar and his uh, son, Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar, meet the army of Pharaoh Necro and defeat them and drive them back south towards Egypt. Now, as uh, Necho retreats, uh, he unseats Jehoahaz, who has been enthroned by the people of Judah after Josiah dies. And at Riblah, Necho, according to 2 Kings 23, 33, and 34, places Jehoiakim on the throne of Judah as his own vassal puppet. So now Egypt controls the throne of Jerusalem. Now Nebuchadnezzar is not going to stand idly by while all of this drama with respect to Assyria and Egypt is being played out on his western frontier. Nebuchadnezzar has been raised by his father to be a soldier, a military commander, as well as the successor king to Babylon, should the empire survive. Consequently, map number three, when Nico essays to march once again towards Carchemish and challenge the uh, dominance of Babylon, particularly in the west, and in the northern regions of Syria. This is an Egyptian challenge against Babylonian power, Babylonian extension of its control any further than Haran or Carchemish, and perhaps even an attempt to drive Babylonians back towards their own queen city, the capital Babylonian Babylonia. Nonetheless, We've moved from 609, map number 2, to 605, map number 3, with Nico, map number 2, doing the same thing that he did, that he's doing in map number 3, marching out of Egypt in an attempt to, uh, to confront uh, Babylon and, uh, and, and, the, and the king of Babylon, and, or the commander in Babylon. In this case, it is Nebuchadnezzar because Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, does not march towards Haran in 605. He had marched with Nebuchadnezzar in 609. They had marched together. But in 605, the leader and commander of the army is the crown prince, the son of the father. Now, in that clash, second clash between Egypt and Babylon at Carchemish, first clash, map number 2, 609, second clash, map number 3, 605, in that second clash, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Necho. Okay, so Egypt goes down for the second time. 
against Babylon. But in 605, after defeating Necho, this time, unlike 609, this time Nebuchadnezzar takes up the chase. He pursues Egypt. He pursues Necho. As Necho retreats, Nebuchadnezzar is on his heels. He did not do that. Nebuchadnezzar did not do that in 609. He beat them on the field at Carchemish and let them retreat. Not this time. Nebuchadnezzar says, eh, twice, that's one time too many, so I'm going to make sure you go back into Egypt. And so he pursues him. And as he pursues him, in the Babylonian chronicles that were discovered, these tablets that have the records of the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar says that he entered Hatti land. Now, this is a terminus technicus in cuneiform or in Akkadian. This is a terminus technicus, a technical word for Syria, Palestine, for that whole region of Syria and Palestine. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to pursue him into this region in 605. That's where the date of Daniel 1.1 comes in. As he's chasing Nico back to Egypt, following Nico's defeat at Carchemish in 605, Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem, the first siege to Jerusalem. And in that siege, he captures Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and carries them off captive to Babylon. And so, you have the long background to Daniel 1.1. And you take a break now, catch your breath, stretch your legs, get a cup of coffee, whatever you like. Come on up and take a look at the displays. I actually have a copy of Wiseman's Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings as well, if you're interested in looking at it. Uh, we have the beast displayed, the iconography of the Babylonian Empire. Yes, the great lions of the Ishtar Gate, which has been rebuilt at the Berlin Museum in Germany. And uh, I'll take any questions if you have any. So take five minutes. Yes, Robert? So why, did he, uh, why didn't he just deal with Egypt? Why did he get distracted on Jerusalem? He has not extended his scepter over Judah particularly, and so he's going to make sure that as he moves down the uh, Syro-Palestinian littoral, he's going to conquer as he goes. And so he comes to Jerusalem uh, knowing its history, uh, knowing its wealth, uh, knowing what's there in the temple, and he actually removes some of the treasures of the temple, as this first chapter of Daniel indicates. Uh, so he's also going to get some booty in the process. And uh, that's the reason that he stops to lay siege to Jerusalem, in my opinion. I want to say something a little more about this when we come back after the, great, uh, after the ba- break. rather. Uh, but uh, that's basically the reason. He's, he's kind of conquering as he goes south. The siege of 605 and to the capture of Daniel 
and his three friends. This, of course, never happened. Because what you're reading in Daniel 1 is a fairy tale. It is a myth. It has been invented by a scribe in the second century before Christ. Somebody who lived during the Maccabean age. In order to tell a story about a Jew who rose to prominence in Babylon. And we know that it's a fairy tale. We know that it's a myth. We know that it's a legend. We know that it was invented. We know because the Babylonian chronicles do not record any siege of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. Now, the Babylonian chronicle that Wiseman translated, that Grayson Grayson retranslated, a part of which is in the Pritchard Ancient Near Eastern text, The Babylonian Chronicles do talk about the 597 siege. In fact, that's what we have a picture of here. We have a picture of the tablet that records the Babylonian annal of that second siege or 597 siege when Ezekiel was carried off. And we also have in the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings, Wiseman or Graceman edition, either one, the record of the third siege, the 586, 587-86 B.C. siege, the destruction of Jerusalem. So, you see, the Babylonian Chronicles, the historical document, not the religious text, the historical document tells us that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah not three times, but twice. Once in 597, once in 586, And therefore, the author of Daniel, or whoever wrote this story, is mistaken, clearly wrong, and cannot be trusted with this fairy tale about the invasion of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. The historical document proves it. The Bible is not a historical document. The Bible is a religious document. The Bible is promoting a religious ideology. The Bible is advancing a notion of a superior Jewish religion, a superior Jewish God in competition with other gods, Egyptian gods, Babylonian gods, Assyrian gods. But there's just one God competing for attention in contrast with others, it's just one religion versus another. I mean, there are many ways to God, the Assyrian way, the Babylonian way, the Egyptian way, the Jerusalem way. So Daniel 1, 1 is not historical. It's not true. Now, it doesn't. It doesn't remove the religious value of the book of Daniel because the religious value of the book of Daniel is about religious people heroically struggling against their oppressors. And don't we all want to be courageous religious people? Whether we're Egyptians or Babylonians or Assyrians or even Jews. No modern liberal, 
commentary believes that Daniel 1.1 is true. None of them. And increasingly very few evangelical and conservative commentaries believe Daniel 1.1 is true. Even Reformed commentators, yes, even some modern so-called conservative Reformed commentators. Because since the Babylonian records don't say anything about it, we therefore can't trust the biblical record, because this is not an historical document, right? Now, my little game has been performed in order to make you feel what I read day in and day out when I read modern scholarship what I deal with day in and day out, because I read more liberals than I read conservatives. They're the pace setters. They're on the edge of the progressive education of our day. And if you don't know what they're saying, or you don't care what they're saying, then you're a fundamentalist. You're not a Calvinist. You're a fundamentalist. You're a bury-your-head-in-the-sand fundamentalist. If you're going to deal with the discussion of the issues of our day, you better understand what those who are leading the discussion are saying. You better understand what they're saying so that you can answer them. Well, Denison, how do you answer them? (laughs) Notice on your outline, I emphasize and put in quotations the fact that Nebuchadnezzar marched into Hati land, which is Syria, Palestine. That's what the Chronicle says. The fact that the Chronicle doesn't say that he besieged Jerusalem in 605 is an omission, wasn't thought to be important, is part of an incomplete record. There are all kinds of explanations for why the Babylonians did not record this siege, but the Bible does. And the Bible's historical accuracy has been demonstrated over and over and over again, particularly in the 20th century, particularly through the archaeologist Spade in the 19th and 20th century. So much has the historical accuracy of the Bible been demonstrated by archaeology that William F. Albright, who was not an evangelical Christian, William F. Albright said in the 20th century, and he excavated in Palestine and in Assyria, William F. Albright said that modern archaeology had not found one artifact to disprove a historic fact in the Bible. Not one. In 2011, we can still say the same thing. We who know the discussion, we who are paying attention to what is being found, we who are interested in what's going on in the providence of God, in people finding things under the earth and in walls and in burial cairns and in Herod's tomb. Hmm? Herod's tomb excavated? Yes, Herod's tomb in the last 10 years excavated. 
Well, the story continues to be the story of the accuracy of the historical record of the Bible. So because the Bible has been demonstrated to be accurate historically in many other areas of archaeological discovery, even though Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Chronicle doesn't mention the first siege of Jerusalem, if the Bible does, that's good enough for me. And one of these days, perhaps, before Jesus comes... One of these days, maybe they'll find that tablet that has the record of Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem in 605. But until then, the invincible, ignorant liberal, the liberal fundamentalist, oh yes, they're fundamentalists on the left as there are fundamentalists on the right. They are as invincibly ignorant on the one hand as on the other because they don't want to be bothered with the whole story. Well, the modern liberal and the modern liberal commentary will reject the historicity, that is, the real facticity of this verse, Daniel 1.1. We accept it because it's part of the inspired word of God, even though the pagan secular, non-inspired chronicle does not record it, we accept it. Because how else do you explain Daniel in Babylon? Or is he a myth? (laughs) Is he a myth? All right, now, you will notice that I placed two passages on your outline, Daniel 1.1 and Jeremiah 46.2. to add fuel to the fire of the liberal ridicule of the historical accuracy of the Bible. We have two verses which talk about the very same thing. These two verses, Daniel 1.1, Jeremiah 46.2, are talking about Nico's invasion or march up to Carchemish in 605. So both of these texts are dated 605 B.C. The one text, Daniel 1, says, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. The second text, Jeremiah 46.2, says, in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. It looks like we've got a problem. It looks like we've got a real problem, and every liberal says, yes, you've got a problem, you've got a real problem. And since the 19th century, all the liberals have said, here is proof of a contradiction in the Bible. Here is proof of an error in the Bible. Says the liberal, the author was confused. The author of Daniel was confused. The author of Daniel is writing in the second century. Second century B.C. He's writing during the period of the Maccabees. And he's confused because he doesn't know his ancient history. He doesn't know that it was really the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Not the third year. And so he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake because he's a human and humans make mistakes. Humans err. Even humans that write the books of the Bible. That's the liberal view. 
the liberal view is that the humans who write the book of the Bible are subject to error. They don't always tell the truth. They don't always tell it the way it really happened. They can't be trusted for historical accuracy. And here is a proof that they can't be. And so we have a contradiction. Two very clear passages in front of our face that say two different things. And they both can't be right. Right? Looks like the liberals win. Again. They always do in the mainline churches. Oh, you're immune to that. Mainline churches were once conservative churches, remember that. So you're not immune to it, and you're not inoculated against the same approach of liberalism. When your kids go off to college and they get into university religion classes and they're told to sneer at the inspiration of the Bible, and now they're smart. They've grown up. they become wise. They know what the professor told them. You can't trust the historicity of the Bible. He has a Ph.D. He's smarter than you, Mom and Dad. He knows more than you do. Well, son or daughter, there are other scholars who don't agree with your smart aleck Ph.D. university professor. And they've got brains, too. And some of them even have Ph.D.s. And they do believe that the Bible is the word of God. And they do believe that it can be defended. And they will give you evidence to back up the historicity of the text. All right, well, let's take a look then at the resolution of the apparent contradiction. It appears as if we have an error, right? That is apparent, is it not? Okay, no sleight of hand, no hocus pocus here. Denison's no David Copperfield, right? All right, looks like we got a real error here. So, how do we resolve the apparent contradiction? Apparent contradiction. It's actually very easy. It's so easy, one wonders what these smart aleck liberals are smoking when they write their commentaries. Because they know this has been said over and over and over again. Ever since the early 20th century, it's been said over and over and over again. It's even been researched and documented from other documents of history by the Assyrian Chronicles. All right. Daniel... Living in Babylon as a young man, perhaps a teenager, growing up in Babylon, Daniel is using a Babylonian way of counting a king's years. Now, how do the Babylonians count a king's years? They count the accession year, or that is the year when the king comes to the throne, even if it is only part of a calendar year, 
He may have only reigned three months in that first calendar year. But they count the accession year as year one of his reign. And then they count every successive year as an additional year. So, in Babylon, you do as the Babylonians do, right? If you're taught in all the lore of the Babylonians as Daniel was, if he's educated in the Babylonian royal school system as he was. Now, he didn't forget his Jewish Bible, as we know from the ninth chapter of this book, Marvelous Prayer. But nonetheless, he's trained up in all the knowledge of the Babylonians, even as Moses was trained up in all the knowledge of the Egyptians. So, having been trained in Babylon, he says that Jehoiakim's first year, which was only part of a full calendar year, is year number one. And that was the year 609. And then you count three more years from that, and lo and behold, what do you get? You get 605 B.C. on the Babylonian numbering scheme. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah isn't trained up in the school of the Babylonians. He doesn't get carried off to Babylon. In fact, he's forced into exile where? When Jerusalem falls and Jeremiah is carried off into captivity, where is he carried? Not to Babylon. He's carried down into Egypt. So he doesn't even get to Babylon. Shucks. I missed the sunset on the Tigris and Euphrates. Only get to see the sunset over the Nile. Okay. Well, Jeremiah is trained in the Hebrew schools. He's trained in the Jewish year, Jewish method of reckoning uh, uh, years of a king. And in Jewish reckoning, the first year or any part thereof is year zero. Doesn't count. The only time you count the king's years is when the first full calendar year begins. And that's year one, which means 608 B.C. is the first year for Jehoiakim. Under that numbering, which brings us down to 605 as the third year of King Jehoiakim. Simple. Just understand how the scribal customs are used to number the name, the years of the king. Question? Is it what backwards? Because if Daniel is starting accession year with year one, shouldn't it be four years? And Dan, Daniel... I'm sorry. Years. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's Daniel there. Okay. And now he's using the Babylonian scheme, which does not count the accession. I, I, re, I retract. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> okay. This is this is the uh, this is the Babylonian scheme here, okay. and this is the Hebrew scheme up here. 
or Jeremiah's scheme up here. Okay? Thanks. The solution then is not to suggest that the author of Daniel was historically ignorant. The solution is to be knowledgeable about the way the name, the reigns of kings are counted if you're in Babylon or if you're in Jerusalem. And once you understand that, then there is no contradiction whatsoever. They are both true because they are true from the context of numbering from, uh, from the background of that particular system of numbering. So, back to 605 and the first siege. While Nebuchadnezzar is in Hatiland and conducting this siege of Jerusalem, he receives news that his father, Nabopolassar, has died back in Babylon. This is one reason why Nabopolassar did not march out to Carchemish with Nebuchadnezzar in 605. He was probably already ill and dying. Well, take map number four in your packet. And notice this remarkable trek of Nebuchadnezzar after he receives the news that his father has died. Yes, Robert? So Nebuchadnezzar's father isn't king at this point? Yes, he is king. Nebuchadnezzar is the crown prince. Okay. So he's he's not been enthroned yet in 605. So when he marches to Haran... He's still just crown prince. He's not the king yet. If I if I've suggested that he's king, it's because I'm kind of telescoping ahead. But now we're going to focus on the on the uh, coronation of Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. Okay, and I just because verse one of Daniel says King Nebuchadnezzar. Correct. Correct. But he's using it retrospectively. It's not an inaccuracy. He's just using the the accepted term of his title. All right, now. Here is Nebuchadnezzar in the west, and you can see how far away Babylon is, okay? It's approximately 600 miles away. Nebuchadnezzar is somewhere north of Damascus. If you see that little squiggly line above Damascus, that's the Orontes River, and at the bottom of that little squiggly line is the city of Ribla, where Nebuchadnezzar had his headquarters for this campaign, The messenger comes to Riblah, and Nebuchadnezzar, realizing his father is dead, also realizes that unless he gets back to Babylon pronto, somebody's going to take that crown away from him, which is not unusual in the ancient world. You have a coup d'etat. That is, you can have a designated king, and then somebody will knock him off before he gets crowned. So Nebuchadnezzar has to run back to Babylon and seize the hands of Bel. Who's Bel? Bel is the chief god of Babylon. Now, there's a statue of Bel in the ziggurat in Babylon. And what the king designate has to do is he has to march up the stairs of the ziggurat and seize the hands of the statue and be announced as Bel's designated or the god's designated ruler. So Nebuchadnezzar has to make a mad dash back to Babylon 600 miles... 
Now, if you measure a straight line from that little squiggly line over to uh, just below Euphrates there, the S in Euphrates, and then take another line and go down to Babylon, that's the way he went. And that straight line, which is go, which would go past Palmyra on your map, that straight line is across the northern Arabian desert. Brutal heat. Brutal heat. Okay, no high-speed rail, no 757, no GPS, no Maserati, no RV, and probably no camels. Why? Because he does it in less than two weeks. Six hundred miles in less than two weeks, between 12 and 15 days, he gets back to Babylon to be crowned. What did he do? Low fly? <laughs> now, <clears throat> what he did probably, and we don't really know how he did it, but what he did probably was he sent ahead fresh horses. And he changed horses like Pony Express did. Remember how the Pony Express... Well, actually, this year, I think, is the centennial of the Pony Express with the 150th anniversary or something like that. They're going to be riding them. They do it every year anyway. They ride them across the country once every year. But they're going to be doing a special celebration of it. I, I can't remember whether it's this year. My brother-in-law is involved in this thing. I can't remember whether it's this year or was it last year. But at any rate, it's that kind of thing. You know the Pony Express, they had these little stations along the way. you got a fresh mount every so many miles. Well, I think what Nebuchadnezzar did was he set, sent you know messengers ahead or he sent groups of men ahead with fresh mounts so that when he finally got there, you know, you just get off one and get on the other and keep on going. And anyway, it's a remarkable achievement. And he seizes the hands of Bel, is acknowledged as the successor to his dead father, king of Babylon, 605, and then he goes back to Hottyland. He returns to the scene of the crime, so to speak. He returns to where he'd been conquering the rest of this country and subduing it, and campaigns further, reducing Jehoiakim to his puppet, his vassal in Judah. All right, well, he finally returns to Babylon for a while in 604, but when Jehoiakim... Uh, <clears throat> who succeeds uh, Jehoiakim when, uh, I'm sorry, when uh, uh, Jehoiakim is carried off in 597, it is as a result of uh, Jehoiakim's betrayal of Nebuchadnezzar to Pharaoh Hophra. And uh, <clears throat> this, uh, this results in uh, marching, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, second march to Jerusalem. We have the tablet up here. And the siege of Jerusalem in which Ezekiel is captured. Jehoiakim is also deported. He's put in prison for approximately 35 years or put under house arrest. And Nebuchadnezzar has his own puppet on the throne again. This time the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah. Zedekiah also does the same thing that Jehoiakim had done. He attempts to play Egypt and Judah off against Babylon in 587. And Nebuchadnezzar said, that's it. That's the last straw. And he marches out 
for the last time in 587, besieges Jerusalem, raises the temple, burns the city to the ground, and deports the rest of the upper classes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now you'll find that depicted on map uh, number six. Map number five showing you the campaign of 597 when he captures Ezekiel and Jehoiakim. Now on that sixth map, you'll notice there just south and west of Jerusalem is the city of Lachish. And the little bar says we can't see the fire signals of Azekah or Lachish. That's from an archaeological text, the Lachish letter. It was discovered in the early 20th century. Uh, that letter is telling how uh, information was relayed in the ancient world. It was relayed by fire signal. And by uh, using ways of you know, closing off the signal or illuminating it or using several kinds of signals, they would send messages across long distances. Uh, it wasn't quite like the uh, telephone or the telegraph, but nonetheless, it was effective. Uh, you'll notice this uh, letter uh, during the siege of Lachish, which was also established at the same time Jerusalem was under siege in 587. They could not see the fire signals in Lachish because Nebuchadnezzar had shut them down so that they couldn't send any messages. It's an interesting little sidelight of this final collapse of Jerusalem. So the headquarters of Nebuchadnezzar in 587 are Lachish, and he sends the Nebuchadnezzar Adan. He sends the commander of his host to Jerusalem to lay the siege. Nebuchadnezzar probably never went to Jerusalem in person. He was at Lachish orchestrating all of this around him, including holding off the Egyptians. And we mentioned the fact that Pharaoh Hophra had sallied out to uh, confront uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and that's that map, that's arrow going down to Raphia, where he confronts Hophra's army, and they retreat back across the Egyptian border. All right, now that's a uh, detailed workout on the historical background, the broad and uh, more narrowly focused context of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is an eyewitness to all of this. He's experiencing all of this. He's experiencing the report. He experiences the first siege itself because he's carried away. He experiences the reports of the second and third siege, as you will see if you read his uh, prayer in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Consequently, he is, uh, he is the, uh, he's at the existential center of this. He's living through it. David. Uh, both these armies had really long supply lines. Uh, was uh, Nebuchadnezzar or his military commanders uh, better at managing the supply lines, or did they have a massively larger force? By the time the Babylonians come to wage war, uh, they have a lot of history behind them as how to, uh, you know, support with materiel and uh, food, etc., an army on the field. And that comes from the experience of the Assyrians. They were masters at it. So not only would they carry away stores from their capital cities, in the case of Assyria, 
Nineveh and Asher, but in the case of Babylon, Babylon, but they would also plunder the regions that they, uh, that they were uh, marching through. And they would leave garrisons in those places in order to maintain that kind of supply. Though consequently, they were always uh, looking ahead to if their army ever had to march through a territory, then they would be a prepared, relatively prepared in advance. Well, let's uh, consider some miscellaneous observations which are more theological in character than merely historical, though they arise from the historicity of the text. And looks, let's look at the reverse symmetries here in this first chapter. Now, we've already noted the little historical bracket between verse 1 and verse 21 of Daniel 1. But notice the pattern of reversal here. Judah goes off to Babylon in captivity. A part of Judah is reversed with captivity, the captivity of exile. They're taken out of their land. They're taken to a foreign country. They're dispossessed of their own inheritance and they're settled into a far-off country. That is a reversal of their circumstances. Daniel goes through the existential experience of having his homeland torn from him, of being planted in an alien land. That's verse 1. Notice verse 21. We noticed the symmetry of Daniel's career, that is, his career begins in verse 1, it ends with Cyrus's appearance in 539 in verse 21. But with Cyrus, Judah returns from Babylon to Palestine. The reverse of the reversal in verse 21 is a prospective testimony to a larger macro-narrative of the book as a whole. Now, keep in mind that this first chapter is signaling Daniel's prophetic narrative, his own narrative biography, and it's signaling his preparation for the prophetic prognostication, the prophetic Biography, the story of what God is going to do in the future. And consequently, this reverse paradigm and the reverse of the reversal paradigm is a key element. It is a key motif in the book. And here it is structurally framed and bracketed by the very first chapter of Daniel 1. That is not a mistake. That is not an accident. That is a clue. It is a clue for you to pay attention to the patterns of reversal in this remarkable book. Now, considering, again, another symmetrical pattern which arises from this first chapter, we have the death of Judah. The death of Judah via Nebuchadnezzar. 
Yet the preservation of a remnant Israel of God, Daniel himself being a part of that remnant Israel of God in exile. A provisional sub-eschatological restoration in verse 21 where Cyrus gives a decree 538, 537 for the children of Israel to go back to Palestine, to go back and rebuild the temple. So the first chapter of Daniel has this pattern of the death of Judah, preservation of a remnant exilic group, and a restoration motif, which is sub-eschatological, that is beneath the perfectly and consummately eschatological restoration of the remnant Israel of God. And what do we find in the last chapter of the book? In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 1, this provisional death and exilic sub-eschatological resurrection by return from exile. In chapter 12, this resurrection from the dead of the redeemed remnant Israel of God, the consummate eschatological restoration. We begin in provisional eschatological judgment and restoration. We end with consummate uh, <coughs> judgment and eschatological resurrection. The book is symmetrically Arranged. It is symmetrically, theologically arranged. The narrative goes from exile to reversal of exile and restoration. It goes from death to resurrection from death. And it goes in that way from chapter 1 to chapter 12. We are moving between the provisional and the eschatological throughout this entire book. The clue is in the structure of chapter 1 and chapter 12. Now, considering the judgment theme, Daniel 1 is a narrative of God's judgment against the kingdom of Judah, and the vessels of the temple are captured by Nebuchadnezzar and carried off to Babylon. But in chapter 5, the judgment is now laid against Babylon. And Belshazzar's feast is the last night of the history of the Babylonian Empire. And the vessels of the temple of the Lord, the very same vessels that Nebuchadnezzar carried off in chapter 1, they are brought out in chapter 5 by Belshazzar in order to drink wine to his gods. And Cyrus destroys Babylon. And that night, and Judah... Goes back to Palestine. The judgment motif that is reversed in the centrality of the feature of the vessels of the temple of the Lord. Finally, we have a broad narrative framing. That is, the dates 605 and 539, which we already detected in chapter 1, verse 1, 605, verse 21 of chapter 1, 539. The captivity and the reverse captivity, that is, captivity in 605, reverse of the captivity, 539. 
judgment and reverse judgment, judgment in 605, the reverse of the judgment, 539, that is a narrative framing paradigm. And it is essential to the integrity of the whole book, which now brings us to the biblical theological interface. The interface of the book of Daniel is the interface between Jew and Gentile. Between a Jew and Gentiles. Judah as a nation suffers for sin at a Gentile's hand. The hand of God via the Gentile Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The Gentiles suffer for sin at the hand of the Son of God. The Son of God who is the Israel of God in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. The interface here is the interface between the clash of Jew and Gentile around a son of God, a child of Israel. Hmm. Hmm. And the provisional interface The interface of the provisional, that is, the national Old Testament dimension with the universal New Testament dimension, the cosmic eternal dimension, and the eschatological interface, the sub-eschatological Old Testament, the semi-eschatological New Testament, and the consummately eschatological eternal interface. These are the arenas through which we are marching in the prophecies and the history of the book of Daniel. Don't get caught up in millenniums. It's not here. It's all about the march of the consummate and the eternal breaking in, breaking in. That's what we're reading. The book of Daniel provides a panoramic window on a fascinating era of world history. We are gazing upon a crossroads, a crossroads between the era of Israel and the era of Palestine, a crossroads of the era of Hebrew monarchy and an era of alien monarchies. Daniel stands at the crossroads of Israel's interface with the nations, with Gentile powers. Israel, henceforth, reduced to vassal status, to the troubled and troubling territory besetting alien kings and kingdoms. Daniel lives with the shift, prophesies the shift, finds himself framed, bracketed, windowed by the shift, a son of Israel who becomes a stranger in a far-off Gentile country. Daniel disenfranchised from the land. Daniel cut off from the land bearing witness 
to a pagan culture. The prophetic history of Daniel portends something dramatically significant, a new narrative story, a very different narrative story. No earthly inheritance, no earthly kingdom, no earthly Jerusalem capital, no earthly temple, no visible kingdom of God, no contact with that earth, that sacred space, that anointed person, that place. Israel-Palestine is to be henceforth the trampled over land, occupied by thieves and vagabonds. No son of David ruling in David's royal city, the very city itself, a byword, a byword of rebellion and agitation, a place always in search of what lies beyond itself, a people existing, merely existing, waiting, waiting, waiting for eternity. Dispossession, alien occupation, deportation, no concrete symbols, no concrete images, no concrete identity, and the world of disorientation, the world of reorientation, spinning, numbing, stunning the mind, benumbing the heart, withering the aspiration, Israel weaned from Israel, now cast adrift among the unclean, the uncircumcised, the nations swallowing up her nation, destroying the old Israel, the concrete Israel, the Israel of the land, and the Davidide, and the temple, all gone to dust, dust and ashes, all wiped away as with a blast of the Lord's nostrils. Can it ever be the same again, Israel trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Daniel, at the crossroads of Israel's history, history of the death of the old Israel and and the appearance of a new Israel. But an Israel so unlike the old Israel that you would not believe it, even if one should rise from the dead. An Israel not of the land. An Israel not of a Davidide in Jerusalem parading in and out of a Solomonic and post-Solomonic temple. An Israel not of this world, an Israel not of this Palestine, an Israel unlike Israel mirrored according to the flesh, an Israel of God, an Israel who is God, an Israel who is Son of God, an Israel who is David's Lord, 
and Israel, who is the temple of the Lord. And Israel was an alien and stranger upon the land. And Israel, who has journeyed from out of eternity to a far-off country in order to return to eternity and his everlasting from eternity to eternity kingdom. And Israel laid in the dust and Israel who dies the death. And Israel who is so wonderfully and dramatically new that his story benumbs and befuddles the old Israel. The old Israel still in bondage to the flesh, to the land, to the king, to the temple, to the window on the past. This new Israel endures the clash of the crossroads, the clash of Israel and the Gentiles. And in his emergence from that clash, new creates an Israel according to the spirit. And Israel raised up from the past, transformed by the future in the present, not at home in the earth, on the land, in the Jerusalem below, the David who is not Lord, the old, the former times, the past away. This now Israel is the true Israel projected by Daniel. This now Israel is the new Israel prophesied by Daniel. This now Israel is the final Israel foreseen by Daniel. This now Israel is the Israel whom even the Gentiles will embrace. This now Israel is the heavenly Israel the eschatological Israel, the once and for all Israel, the Israel after whom there is no Israel. For he, he is all that Israel was ever meant to be. And since his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, he is the only Israel the one and only Israel. He is the Israel who is a person, not a land. He is the Israel who is God, not a creature. He is the Israel who says once and for all, that former Israel is past once and for all. The book of Daniel the prophetic projection of the transition from the old to the new Israel at the crossroads of the nations. 
at the interface with the Gentiles. That is what this history is ultimately all about. Next week, Daniel 2 and 7. But until then, any questions? Robert? Uh, One of the challenges as a Reformed person in interpreting Daniel is always uh, how much of Daniel is speaking of history, which has been fulfilled already, and how much is still speaking of history or the future yet to come. Listening to what you just described there, it's almost as if Daniel is a book that for us, we can look back to. And it's like this picture of uh, the church uh, between Christ's first coming and second coming, only we've got this Old Testament picture of of a captivity, of, of living under Babylonian rule, of without a temple, of all these things. Uh, it, and yet, we get to see in that book uh, the judgment of Babylon, the judgment of all these things. It's almost as if it's a picture of our, an Old Testament picture of the era we now live in. Would that be a fair uh, description? Keep in, keep in mind that the climactic prophecies of the visions of Daniel terminate with the Fourth Empire which is the Roman Empire. The fifth monarch is the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom which has dawned and been active in history since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and since his initial public ministry and his proclamation of the kingdom of heaven as a king. Therefore, <clears throat> Daniel is projecting climax of the sub-eschatological or proto-eschatological into the semi-eschatological of the New Testament era. And the only thing that remains from the emergence of the clash of the interface between Israel and the Gentiles is the appearance of the Antichrist. That's the only thing in front for Daniel. That's the only thing in front for us out of the book of Daniel. For he is the same man of sin of 2 Thessalonians 2. Consequently, to see this book clearly in my opinion is to see this book bringing us to the supreme interface of history, which is the appearance of the Messiah, the anointed of the Lord. The man, the son of man who rides on the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7. This one who is with his people in the midst of the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 3. One like a son of God walking in the midst of the flames. With the the climax then, you see, of this prophetic vision. But there is a ultimate crisis at the end which is the projection in chapter 7 and in chapter 11 of the final Antichrist, the definitive Antichrist. In between, we are living out of the fullness of what Daniel has projected.
David, you were next. Um, my question is, is one of definition. Do we define post-exilic Israel as a theocracy? I do not. Uh, not in any uh, mosaic sense, not even in any monarchical sense. It is a transitional era in which the, shall we say, Levitical theocracy is gone and even the Davidic theocracy or the monarchical royal theocracy is gone. They have been stripped of it. They have been stripped of it by exile, death and restoration. So they never essay to put another Davidic king back upon their throne. And when the, the temple was destroyed finally in 70 AD, they never attempt to rebuild and reinstitute uh, atonement sacrifice. Pete? Do you think there's any significance that uh, Daniel is a lawyer with a prophetic gift rather than a prophet? <clears throat> No, uh, from the etymology of Daniel, meaning the Lord is my judge, I don't think that that suggests a, a, a biographical portrait of someone who has legal training. I wouldn't de- deny that he may have been exposed to the legal maneuverings of Babylon in his uh, education there, but uh, as, as you hear me portraying him, I am persuaded that he is more prophetic than most Old Testament introductions allow him. Margaret? How many weeks will this class be? Well, <laughs> 70. <laughs> or until 70 times 7. <laughs> That's undetermined in the sense that it's a little bit open-ended. This is a short series. It's not going to go for 13 weeks. We will meet next week again, and then we'll have a week off. And then we will come back the first week in May. But one of the reasons I was asked to do this, and actually I'm doing this by request. Um, one of the reasons I was asked to do this was to pay particular attention to the very complex Chapter 11. And that's going to take some time. However, as I mentioned, I do want to look at Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 next week. I want to make some comments on Daniel 5. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the 70 weeks uh, <clears throat> and uh, then looking at Daniel 8 in preparation for Daniel 11. But my focus <clears throat> is more upon the succession of history, as we've outlined tonight, the succession of history that is before Daniel. Now, when we begin his prophecies, as we look at the vision, the dream in chapter 2 and then the vision in chapter 7, we look at them next week. Now, we're going to be looking at what's ahead of Daniel, what's going to come out of, of his era of history. So that's my primary focus, but I don't want to ignore the, shall we say, eschatological or prophetic uh, hermeneutical issues which are on the side. That's not my primary focus, however. I, I can see us going to the end of May, you know, but remember, the 11th chapter is very complex. And, you know, most people throw their hands up. Even many pastors will throw their hands up in despair. They can't figure it out. All right. It, it is very demanding. And we, we will take our time as we go through it. So I won't, I won't predict how long it's going to take us. But I do want to finish Chapter 11. Yes, David, once again. You're free to go if you need to go. Thank you very much, David. I, I don't make 
uh, uh, whether uh, there's artifact uh, from the uh, pre-exilic uh, kingdoms that are found as meaning anything one way, one way or the other. But I suspect that there was some sort of inventory that the Babylonians did when in 586 they sacked Jerusalem and burned it and they carried off the vessels. Uh, my question is, is there anything in the Babylonian accounting of what happened that speaks to the Did it Was it burned in place in Jerusalem? Did they cart it off? Or? They, they, they took what was uh, valuable, yes, they carted it off. There's been nothing that's turned up as an in, of kind of an inventory list. Uh, <clears throat> this mention of Jehoiakim is one tablet that recognizes his presence and the provision that was made for him in captivity. Uh, <clears throat> there are names of individuals that occur on certain uh, rolls or certain tablets that are Jewish names. But uh, uh, whatever there may have been has either not been translated or uncovered or discovered. Remember that what was retrieved in the 19th century, much of it is still sitting in the basement of the British Museum. It's never been translated from cuneiform into English. And consequently, what Wiseman did was really quite an accomplishment as well as you know, a, a great contribution to the history of the discussion. However, there's a tremendous amount of material that's still there. And one of the tragedies is that we're losing individuals who have the facility to translate cuneiform into English. They're, they're, it's a very demanding language, and there aren't many who are willing to spend the time to master it. So uh, uh, my conclusion is very little of what is underneath the mound of Assyria and Nineveh, Asher, Asher and Nineveh has ever been recovered. There's a 90-foot high mound there that still has to be excavated and still has to have material retrieved from it. Who knows what's hidden under that? And with, when Saddam Hussein began to rebuild uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, there are probably artifacts underneath that which have not really been uh, uh, completely uh, exhausted and, and harvested as well from the destruction of Babylon by the Persians. So the jury is still out, so to speak, on that kind of data. Thanks for coming. <laughs>